Welcome to Wolfson College. I'm Christina Redfield, the acting president of the college. The annual Isaiah Berlin Lecture was launched in 1990 to celebrate the 80th birthday of the college's founding president, Sir Isaiah Berlin. The Berlin Lecture is in his own field of study, broadly speaking, the history of ideas. Previous speakers have included Amartya Sen, Roy Foster, and Michael Ignatiev. It is my pleasure to introduce Baroness Helena Kennedy, QC. Baroness Kennedy is one of Britain's most distinguished lawyers and active public figures. She has spent her professional life giving voice to those who have least power within the system, championing civil liberties and promoting human rights. She is an expert in human rights law, civil liberties, and constitutional issues. In her practice of law as a barrister, she has acted in many of the most prominent cases of the last 30 years, including the Brighton bombing, the Michael Bettany espionage trial, and the Guildford Four appeal. Baroness Kennedy was a seminal force in promoting equal opportunities for women at the bar. She was a founding member of Charter 88, the Constitutional Reform Group, and she served as its chair from 1992 to 1997. Baroness Kennedy also chaired the Human Genetics Commission from 1998 to 2007 and the British Council from 1998 to 2004. She chaired an inquiry for the Royal College of Pathologists and the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health into sudden infant death. Baroness Kennedy has written and broadcast on a wide range of issues from medical negligence to terrorism to the rights of women and children. Baroness Kennedy's outstanding contribution in a wide range of fields has been recognized by many honors and awards. She is an honorary fellow of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies, an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Psychiatry, a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, and a fellow of the City and Guilds of London Institute. Baroness Kennedy is an honorary fellow of the University of Cambridge and of the School of Oriental and African Studies. She has been awarded more than 30 honorary degrees. She was the first chancellor of Oxford Brookes University. Baroness Kennedy's work on human rights has been recognized by the governments of France and Italy. She is a trustee of the British Museum and of the Booker Trust, which administers the well-known literary prize. Her interest in literature has led to her judging many book prizes, including the Samuel Johnson Prize, the Orange Prize, and the Arvin Prize for Poetry. Helena Kennedy was created a life peer in 1997 and is a labor member in the House of Lords. In 2011, Baroness Kennedy was elected principal of Mansfield College, and she took up this post in Michaelmas term 2011. It is my pleasure to invite Baroness Kennedy to present the 2012 Isaiah Berlin Lecture on the theme of law and globalization, powerful or powerless. Thank you, Acting Principal. My mother once confronted with a neighbor who said, uh, Mrs. Kennedy, I've just seen an article about your daughter. How does she do all the things that she does? And my mother said, you haven't seen her skirting boards. <laughs> so I don't want you all to think that uh, having heard Christina, that uh, I am some paragon of virtue, uh, not at all. Um, 
probably many people were rather surprised and wondered what Mansfield College uh, was doing and how, why they needed uh, a criminal lawyer to be uh, the principal. Uh, all I can tell you is that if you watch Morse, you'd think there were more murders happening in Oxford than anywhere else in the country. But uh, it's been a great delight for me to come to Oxford, but there is no greater delight than uh, having the opportunity of coming and giving this very prestigious lecture. It's really wonderful to be here, and I consider it such an honor. And uh, I, uh, I was with uh, Lady Berlin a number of years ago and had dinner with her um, with mutual friends, and, uh, and we spoke, spoke at length about Isaiah, and I can think of no greater honor than having the opportunity of coming and speaking and being in the presence of members of his family tonight. Um, I've just embarked on uh, making a series of programs for the BBC, um, for Radio 4, on law and capitalism. And it came out of um, my having done a number of, uh, of I've broadcast quite regularly, but a number of programs I'd made a couple of years ago um, um, about justice and about the law of unintended consequences, um, a, a great field of law that nobody <laughs> has, uh, has looked at the parameters of um, sufficiently. Um, but they came back to me and said that as a result of that, that we were interested in my doing something else, that law had this, uh, captured the imagination of people. And, um, and so I came uh, up with the idea, it was really flying a kite, that... Um, that did catch the interest of the commissioning editors at Radio 4. And it was a question, really. Has the common law been a key factor in the development of capitalism? Hasn't capitalism flourished most in the bosom of the common law? Largely, I was contending, uh, because of concepts created within the English common law, such as the requirement of consideration in contract law, um, but also uh, because of the flexibility of the common law, its ability to adapt and change. As Isaiah Berlin himself explained in many of his writings, the nature of law in the United Kingdom is that it is permissive, less rule-bound, a great deal of discretion is left to judges. And so the question really was, didn't we, therefore, in exporting the English common law to great tracts of the world, didn't we export these concepts, and aren't we, in fact, still doing so? The common law countries have been urgently proactive in promoting a commercial common law as an essential basis for the globalized market. And I know this from my direct experience of chairing the British Council, which Christina mentioned, because we were very active in assisting, particularly China, but other parts of the world, uh, which had come out of, um, um, for example, former Soviet countries. But we'd, we, we were assisting them in creating commercial law base, bases. And the, the purpose of that was so that they could be recognized around the world by potential business part partners. There had to be an assurance to market partners that there would be a recognition of legal contracts. And so we sent out lawyers to draft new commercial laws in China and help train whole cohorts of young Chinese lawyers through British universities. And those young Chinese lawyers were um, heading for the commercial courts back home. 
our senior judges more recently have been involved in creating a new commercial law court in the Arab world, based in Qatar, but founded on common law principles and UK commercial law. It's been headed up by Harry Wolfe, who was uh, uh, there at the founding of this, but the new lead judge will be uh, Nicholas Phillips, Lord Phillips, who was our most senior judge in our own Supreme Court. The United Kingdom and America have made it clear to the world that a sound base in law is essential for trading. And when it comes to soft diplomacy, this is where great efforts are expended, from Tashkent to Timbuktu, drafting and educating and lending expertise in the furtherance of common law-based commercial law. In addition, when parties enter into huge commercial contracts, even if they're not British, if neither of the parties are British, they often choose and name the UK courts as the place where any dispute should be resolved if there becomes a dispute surrounding that commercial contract. So one of the concomitant questions is whether the common law's laissez-faire approach to markets has been one of the factors which has also allowed the excesses of capitalism, which are now costing us dear. The economic model of neoliberalism took root in America and indeed spawned uh, 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 um, a certain thinking of that order here in the United Kingdom. And it perhaps isn't unrelated that it was here, it was in America and here in the United Kingdom that the banking crisis really started and destabilized much of the economic world. Lawyers acted as advisors to the banks and to the stockbroking companies and to the hedge fund uh, folks and nodded through practices whose legitimacy was never questioned. The Occupy movement is but the spearhead of a strong public feeling that those responsible have not felt the full force of law. Now, the purpose of tonight's lecture is not to, to rehearse those particular arguments, but it was through working on those programs for the BBC that I was brought to the concept, back again and again, to the concept of universalism, uh, which is a question that constantly taxes lawyers, and particularly human rights lawyers, but also political theorists. And it's become clear to me that the very people who speak of the impossibility of universal human rights have no difficulty in arguing for universalism when it comes to commerce and commercial law. Globalization has brought undoubted benefits, but it is my argument tonight that in the face of globalization, with its negative impact on democracies, with its culture of consumerism, with the increasing gap between rich and poor, and with the contest for shrinking resources from oil to water and the inevitable conflicts over them, with the rise in fundamentalist religion to fill the spiritual hole in people's lives, the need, therefore, for universal agreement on law, on human rights norms, is ever more imperative. Yet they probably will continue to be highly contested. The struggle for human rights is not in a good place. The challenges are not only coming from tyrants and authoritarian governments around the world, there are serious problems closer to home, which undermine the United Kingdom's effectiveness as a champion of human rights in the world. Because if we are having uh, problems making the arguments here, and if they are lost, then it's to the detriment of 
universal human rights. If we retreat from human rights, what hope China? So let me start with the title of the lecture. In our globalized world, is law powerful or actually quite powerless? The rule of law, as that great judge, Tom Bingham, argued in a wonderful book I recommend to you about the rule of law, it is one of the twin pillars of our society and along with our democracy is central to civilization. The facts remain that law requires political will to be effective. Universalism of human rights has always been contentious, but the events of 9-11 and their aftermath have thrown those arguments into stark relief. Can we be sure that universalism is right or can relativism ever be justified? And it's a question that really does circulate in political and legal circles. And if we espouse universal human rights in theory, how can we make that a reality in practice? Now, when people talk to me about human rights, I always say that my uh, commitment to human rights comes to me really through the pain of my clients. They taught me the meaning of human rights, whether it was abused women or children unable to leave their aggressors because they were so terrified, whether it was those who were sexually violated or beaten, battered, battered women who found themselves blamed, or women who were raped who found themselves held responsible for what had happened, victims of persecution abroad who sought asylum here but suddenly faced a wall of disbelief, people caught up in political horrors who found themselves accused, usually because they belonged to minorities, and then were scapegoated. All those who suffered miscarriages of justice that I represented over the years and lived the hell of false conviction. Black clients whose lives were disfigured by racism, homosexuals harassed and vilified by the vice squad, as it was then known. Why? Because they dared to love their own gender. The horror list is long and wretched, and for the most part, there are no words that are adequate for it. But human rights provide us with a language for discussing our relationships with each other and with the rest of the world. It offers us a language that belongs neither to the left nor the right, or they certainly shouldn't. It can speak to all the peoples of the world, irrespective of religious belief or in the absence of religious belief. Human rights are, in a sense, an exposition and codification of what as sentient moral beings we feel each person has a right to in life. They place justice, tolerance, mutual respect, and human dignity at the heart of all of our activities. But it's about the dark activities that happen in places like Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo that catch the headlines. Not the fact that human rights are also about the battering of the woman next door by her partner. We are all too aware and we recognize human rights when it's about child labor in foreign sweatshops, but are less comfortable when it might be about the abuse of children by priests closest to home. It can be about gross atrocities around the world, but also, we've got to remember, it can also be about small acts of inhumanity, like the racial intimidation of our neighbors or the taunting of young Muslim women because they wear a veil. These things that scar the round of our lives in our communities. Critics of human rights claim, of course, that they're Western, that they're culturally specific and imperialist, 
And it's right that contemporary human rights have their origins in Enlightenment thinking, with the questioning of unthinking obedience to religion or monarchy um, being held up and examined, and a rationalizing scientific study of human social relations um, being there at the core of a new way of approaching uh, law. However, the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in the post-war period was a specific response to the barbarity that took place in Europe and elsewhere in the 30s and 40s. So in a sense, the Universal Declaration was much less a celebration of the supremacy of Enlightenment thinking and values than a warning about how badly things can go wrong. And so it was an effort to embed values into law, not to create global law, but to create a template traveling alongside law in our nations around the world, a template against which all legal systems should be measured. History has taught us that human, humans are at risk of their lives if they don't have some free agency. And the best way, of course, of arguing for human rights is often to use history and the experiences of history because they're dependent on a particular, they're not dependent on a particular understanding of human nature. People from different cultures may continue to disagree about what it is to be good or what is good for a good life, but may nevertheless agree about what is unarguably not good, unarguably wrong. Sometimes it's easier to explain rights negatively. So we all know that none of us want to be tortured or locked up indefinitely without trial. So talking about rights to protect from wrongs can be a helpful way of fostering an initial understanding of human rights. But I think we have to go further than that. I've traveled now widely around the world and met with human rights lawyers and activists as well as those who have suffered from human rights abuses. And when they talk, there is a common thread that runs through the stories they tell. Invariably, they describe disenfranchisement or discrimination on account of gender or on account of their religion or their politics or their race or their skin color or their sexuality or their age. They tell of their second-class status, their insecurity, how they feel exploited. They talk of their poverty and their loss of liberty, their loss of livelihood, of family and dignity. And so it's easy for us to feel an abhorrence when we hear those stories about degradations and indignities. They strike a chord in so many of us, and it makes it possible to talk about positive rights. Most people recognize that part of the human condition is a desire to love and be loved, to have meaningful relations with others, a family life, which we would now say includes the right of homosexuals and lesbians and transgender people to live freely also with their beloved. People also have a desire for community and collegiality, which entitles people to organize, organize in trade unions or in political parties, to come together without limitations being put on who they might join with. A desire for knowledge, and so the right to information. A yearning for meaning, which can translate into freedom of religion. It is this further defining of human desires and needs that makes the language of human rights so compelling. Bhikkhu Parekh, now in the House of Lords with me, 
great uh, uh, academic, sought to describe our basic needs in a paper in Human Rights in Global Politics, uh, which was uh, published in 1999. He said, people wish to live, they desire food and physical wholeness, they loathe disease and pain, they require rest, they need to remain active, and they seek sexual satisfaction. It's common to everybody. He identified five universal moral values. Human unity, human dignity, human worth, the promotion of human well-being, and equality. And I doubt that many people would cavil with any of them, certainly if there was a possibility of not being at the receiving end of some of those things. The throwaway contention that human rights values are Western also takes no account of the fact that long before Tom Paine's Rights of Man pamphlet or the French Declaration of the Rights of Man or the US Declaration of Independence, Buddha advanced the idea that all humans are equal, as does the Quran. King Darius of Persia granted freedom of religion to conquered people. The Cyrus Cylinder, dating from the 6th century BC, recently loaned by the British Museum to Iran because of its regional significance, is often referred to as one of the earliest human rights documents because it established protection for prisoners of war. Fernand de Varenne uh, published research um, about the Asia-Pacific, and he had uh, spent time examining Asian-Pacific human rights documents and resources, and he found that the Korean ruler, Yi Yul-gok, established the right to freedom of expression in the 14th century, seeing it as essential to a society's success. In the oldest known Siamese writing in the 13th century, King Ram Kang Heng, the Great, had stone slabs inscribed with rights of everyone to be free and to have freedom of movement, freedom of thought, of religion and conscience, and freedom to participate in the free flow of commerce. There's evidence within his kingdom of the generous treatment of visitors, of the other, of justice being administered with fairness and without discrimination as to race or sex. Western invention? After the First World War in 1919, the Japanese tried to have the League of Nations Covenant approve an amendment to Article 21, which was the first attempt to recognize equality and prohibit discrimination in international law. They sought equal and just treatment in every respect, making no distinction either in law or in fact on account of race or nationality. This was the Japanese trying to put this amendment into the League of Nations Covenant in 1919. My source for this, Margaret Macmillan, my colleague, another head of house here uh, at Oxford down there at St. Anthony's. Well, the amendment was never included. The idea of equal and just treatment, irrespective of any distinction of race or nationality, somehow stuck in the craw of certain people. The greatest opposition to this proposal, I'm afraid, came from Britain and the United States and Australia. Lord Balfour, our Foreign Secretary, found the notion that all men were created equal a rather interesting idea, but not one he favoured, <laughs> saying it was scarcely possible that a man from Central Africa was equal to a European. There you have it. While none of this is evidence, of course, that... Asian societies or Eastern societies are particularly amenable to human rights. What it does show is that many non-Western societies in Asia and elsewhere acknowledge the importance 
of some of the founding values which eventually emerged as human rights in the 20th century, long before we did. Developing nations often see human rights as the preoccupation of richer nations. Because, of course, they look at us and they see that we're not bedeviled by serious poverty or violent conflict. And they see that we have placed the rights of individuals over the needs and cohering values of communities, which they see as having been lost in their value to all of us. They also watch the hypocrisy of the rich North with regard to its conduct and its indulgence of the conduct of countries with which we do business or with which we have strategic alliances. The whole way in which we treat Saudi Arabia, particularly, is on my mind just now. The treatment of women there is one of the things, but the treatment of political opponents, the absence of, uh, of uh, free press, the absence of lawyering, the, the, the mere mention of human rights um, is an abhorrence. But no challenge is made. And so you can understand why around the developing world and in other parts of the world, the challenge is made to us. Who are you to tell us how to conduct our affairs? It was in early 1947, of course, that Eleanor Roosevelt had that wonderful dinner party uh, that is, uh, uh, I've often referred to it in lectures that I've given, but a wonderful uh, occasion where she gathered together the great legal minds of the time, jurists and lawyers and judges from around the world, 18 in number to begin with, to her apartment in Washington Square in Greenwich Village and said, how do we give meaning to that call that should never happen again. Can't we create global law to prevent it? And the answer was, of course, as lawyers would say, is that law is so embedded in our customs and traditions and out of the deeper soil of experience within our countries that it's very hard for people to give those things up. And that was why the idea of signing into a declaration of shared values was the thing that she... Uh, uh, decided had to be done. And of course, the Universal Declaration itself is not law, but what it became was the basis for the creation of the European Convention on Human Rights, became the basis for the, the introduction of human rights norms into constitutions that were being created in the post-war period, and the basis of constitutions and amendments to constitutions ever since. In the period of the 50s, it was a comparatively fallow period in terms of human rights. But then in the early 60s, we saw the creation of NGOs like Amnesty International, and then thereafter Human Rights Watch, and other NGOs basically holding governments to account, shining a spotlight on the ways in which there was double speak about the business of human rights. You have to remember that when nations came together to sign up to this aspiration of a universal declaration, that you had Jim Crow laws in the United, in the United States of America, you had gulags in so the Soviet Union, you had Britain still being an imperialist uh, country, um, not bearing close examination of some of the things done, done in the name of crown. And you had many horrors happening 
Um, so it wasn't as though people were speaking from a position of, uh, of being without guilt themselves. But arguments about human rights have been beset by the claim of cultural relativism. Cultural relativism refers to the view that all cultures are equal. Who are we to say that one culture is any greater than any others? And universal values become secondary when examining those cultural norms. This being so, no outside value, they claim, should automatically be deemed superior to that of the local culture. Even if the local culture might involve something like, for example, female circumcision um, or genital mutilation, um, on the basis that that is uh, a custom and practice in the area. The human right prohibiting cruel and degrading treatment, they say, should not prevent the cutting of the clitoris or the labia. But I'm afraid human rights have to take on even the most difficult of issues, whether it's about the veiling of women and the stoning of them because they fail to comply with rules. Strict cultural relativism, um, arguing that there should be religious respect, can often be a justification for human rights abuse. The problem with uncritical acceptance of cultural relativism is that it avoids examining the very societal structures that create the cultural norm. Who determines culture? He who decides controls the outcome, and I'm afraid it usually is he. The power to define culture, the power to determine religious and legal norms, has rested with men, traditionally. And not just any men, but the leading male power sources within those societies. That's why we should be very careful about leaping to any acceptance of cruel practices without asking what their purpose is or was. The insistence that human rights cannot be universal is often actually about something else altogether, usually about sustaining structures of power that are authoritarian or patriarchal. As Michael Ignatieff, I heard he gave one of your lectures, has said, relativism is the invariable ally, alibi of tyranny. And it sure is. When our Court of Appeal, and subsequently the House of Lords, heard a woman's case for asylum based on her facing enforced FGM, if she were returned to Sierra Leone, um, our judges um, heard a legal debate which turned on an acceptance of the practice, not just by men, but it was argued that it was the women in the community who endorsed that practice, and therefore that somehow made the abuse all right. The argument really circled around whether women could be seen as being a particular social group, especially when they as women, as well as the men in a society, are accepting a particular practice. And of course, what we know is that female genital mutilation is a method that's justified to keep women chaste, to, pr to prove virginity on marriage, and of course, to make women more restrained. In the Court of Appeal, our judges found against the woman in her claim to asylum. Fortunately, in the House of Lords, the case of Zainab, Zainab Esther Forna was won. And it has to be said, and I always make the point, that the one, the one judge in the Court of Appeal who did not accept her colleague's judgment was a woman judge. And the person who led for the judgment in the House of Lords was a woman judge. 
And so it does make a difference if you have women at the table. When I travel on human rights work, I do not find sweeping resistance to human rights. In fact, it's usually governments who don't like human rights discourse because it shines a light on their conduct. Or it's the largely male elders in communities who insist on preserving culture and tradition. In some societies, it's argued that it is right for men to have power over women, strictly controlling who women marry, who they can talk to, where they're allowed to go. I'm sure that in a future Afghanistan, it's going to be very hard for women to resist those pressures. All this, of course, is objectionable to human rights activists here in the West. But the point of human rights is not to say that people cannot live in such a way if they chose to. But human rights has to be seen more clearly. Human rights do not seek to prevent people living lives in their communities as they want, wearing a veil, covering their faces. The point is that the individual should be free to choose whether they wish to live a life according to those principles. And there has to be the freedom to opt out of such approaches to living without fear of punishment. And governments have to provide those protections and laws that ensure that women have those choices. Making the case for universalism can be particularly difficult in those circumstances where those who are the victims of human rights violations actually condone the culture or community that legitimizes the abuse of their rights. What should not be forgotten is that these individuals will often lack the resources, whether financial, educational, or otherwise, to challenge the diminution of their rights. They may even consent. However, often the consent is because they do not have the resources to dissent, even if they wanted to. But perhaps even more key is that the very injustice which deprives a woman in a deeply patriarchal society of some of her rights may deny her the ability to even imagine an alternative. Many women accept subjugation because to challenge the status quo is as frightening, is a frightening as well as liberating prospect. And so, for example, I oppose France's ban on the veil, but the argument that women and girls are forced to wear it is, in my experience, not totally true. Many of the young Muslim women that I meet in conferences are quite assertive and clear that they are choosing to wear the veil. And for them, for many of them, they are choosing to wear the veil because like black women and men did in the 60s, it can be an assertion of their pride in their difference and being who they are. As well as the position and treatment of women, the issues which inflame most controversy and rejection of universalism are the death penalty, torture, homosexuality, and freedom of expression, with different nations arguing their right to cultural difference rather than bow to any outside principle. Each one of those issues raged over in other parts of the world, however, has a blowback effect here in the United Kingdom. The European Convention, ban on the death pen penalty, uh, limits the UK's ability to deport, as does the prohibition on torture. So we can't deport people to countries which have the death penalty. We can't deport people to countries where there is torture. The torture issue also affects our due process and fair trial obligations because evidence based on torture, or which may be the product of torture, has been ruled contrary to human rights 
and that's now been done by, by our own highest court. But not before we ourselves fell foul of the human rights standards because we locked people up in Belmarsh, non-citizens, without trial, for many years, four years, before our courts decided that it was an abuse of the right to due process. We've always got to remember that human rights are actually distinct from civil liberties. In what way are they distinct? Civil liberties largely are vested in people as their, their right and entitlement as citizens in a nation. Human rights extend beyond that. They extend to people who may not be the citizens of a nation. And they're vested in people because of their humanity. And so we should take pride in the fact that our most senior judges clearly stated the principle that because these people were foreigners didn't mean that they weren't entitled to a due process. On homosexuality, we now interpret the right to family life as including a partnership with a person of the same sex, as I've mentioned. But it's raised serious issues around immigration. It's meant that uh, arguments are made for allowing immigrants to remain in the United Kingdom who have formed committed relationships akin to heterosexual marriage. Men and women fleeing persecution because of their sexuality are seeking asylum. We have a number of cases of Iran, which has, uh, as we've seen even photographs in the front of our papers of people being publicly hanged because uh, of their homosexuality. Um, and yet, even so, our courts sometimes still dither on what line to take because the notion is that there will be floodgates opened if too many uh, decisions are made favorable to people coming uh, for refuge. On women's rights, we've had to confront customs and practices which live on in parts of the world, but which we find unacceptable. Child marriage. I've mentioned uh, um, uh, female genital mutilation, but we also have forced marriage, honour killing, forced prostitution. I've recently chaired an inquiry into human trafficking, and, and the enforcement of prostitution has become, a, on a global scale, has become a very serious issue. But again, there's a backlash against providing sanctuary and asylum to women fleeing these practices because asylum is conflated with immigration. And of course, immigration is a toxic electoral issue. Maintaining our commitments to human rights internationally has very real implications nationally for immigration and asylum policy. And it's not just here, but throughout Europe. And it's one of the main reasons why the concepts of human rights have become so controversial and so antagonistic to sections of our society, particularly on the right. There are large swathes of uh, the Conservative Party who hate anything that they think is European, and they're convinced that the European Convention is another pesky assault on the English way of life and on our parliamentary democracy. And they don't make any distinction um, from the fact that the European Convention of Human Rights has not got anything to do with the European Union. The European Union is separate from the Council of Europe, which is the, if you like, the, the, the caretaker of the standards of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. Many on the right seem to be oblivious to the fact that the convention was actually drafted by British conservative lawyers in, the 19, in 1950 led by David Maxwell Fife, who was then, he was a QC, he was a conservative uh, attorney general, and he did 
uh, that drafting with senior civil servants and with the assistance of, uh, of academics at the urging of Winston Churchill. Because it was recognised that getting buy-in to a set of legal norms was a way of unifying, of unifying people behind principles that would prevent the kind of atrocities that had taken place, preventing judges claiming, as the German judges had done in Germany, that they were only administering their nation's laws and therefore their hands uh, could be washed clean. However, scepticism about the European Court and Convention goes beyond little Englanders. And I want to explain why I have some serious concerns about the direction of travel. There's a growing resentment, and it's less ill-informed, which is about accepting rulings from supranational courts, which is claimed are overreaching their jurisdiction. And this, this complaint, this set of complaints, is coming um, from those who I would put into the same camp as Justice Scalia, the justice on the Supreme Court of the United States, who insists on interpreting the American Constitution according to the intention of the Founding Fathers. And so what we're seeing here are a growing number of lawyers feeding sections of, if you like, the political class with the idea that there has to be the same kind of narrow interpretive approach to the European Convention. These are what are called original intention theorists, and they're the new beasts on our block. They are literalists. They do not, do not see law as a living, breathing instrument which evolves for different times. And so they would say that the European Court has overreached in saying that uh, people cannot be returned to the death penalty. That the European, Convention's, uh, the European Court's decision that people can't be returned to places where there's torture is an overreach um, of their um, jurisdiction. These critics point to two cases which they believe, I mean, because they're particularly useful, because they believe that they highlight the horror of activist judges, of judges going too far and making decisions that should be the purview of domestic parliaments. The prisoner's right to vote judgment from the European Court, you've only just uh, had a reiteration of it in this last week, has provided the perfect vehicle for arguments about national sovereignty and what is perceived to be the overreach of the European Court. And the press are all too willing to present this as the outrage of a foreign court allowing rapists and murderers the right to elect those who make laws in this country. But it's worth really looking at the limited ambit of the U European Court's decision. It has ruled against a blanket ban on prisoners voting. Why? Because it's the blanket ban quality of it that causes concern. It's to prevent oppressive governments marking out whole categories of people as undeserving of the vote. Where does that come from? The experience of seeking to deny the franchise to Jews, to communists, to the Roma. Law has to consider how it can be used when it falls into the wrong hands. 
You have to, in making law, look in your wing mirrors and anticipate potential misuse and abuse of legal rulings. It's been open to the British government when that, gov that uh, decision was passed and handed down uh, five years ago. It was open to the British government to say that, for example, prisoners serving just under four years um, could apply for a postal vote. I mean, this is not a question of people, um, for example, in North London where there are three prisons um, all en masse voting um, in, uh, in the Hornsey constituency. Their right to vote will be uh, linked to the place where they lived before imprisonment. They could apply for a postal vote. It could have been that the Labour government, that was in government at the time, could have decided that a sentence of three or four years Anything above that, you're not going to get the right to vote, but under that, you can apply for a postal vote. That was all they had to do. Or anybody serving a sentence for anything um, that's violent will be refused a postal vote, but anyone else can. I mean, you could find some way to slice or dice that decision. But they chose not to do that, and the reason they chose not to do it is because of Daily Mail headlines. You see, judgments that are handed down from Europe are allowed, the country which it's being referred to is allowed to interpret that judgment within a margin of appreciation, which means that the judgment can be interpreted in a way that fits with the culture, history, traditions, and polity of that nation. And so that's why there would have been that leeway for any government, as there is indeed now, that uh, the European Court has said, why have you done nothing about the judgment that we handed down? So, would you know that from the headlines of the newspapers? Would you know that from David Cameron's utterance that he's disgusted at the idea and horrified at the idea of, uh, of uh, people being able to vote, people who were prisoners? when quite clearly he thought we were talking about rapists and mass murderers and multiple offenders, when in fact it could be uh, designed in a very different way. The second case is Abu Qatada, a Muslim preacher about whom it is claimed there is intelligence of his inciting terrorist activity. Uh, he came here in the 90s from Jordan seeking asylum, claiming that he'd been persecuted in Jordan. He uh, feared um, that he would be tortured on arrest there, and he feared that there would be a trial that would, might take place there uh, and that it would be based on evidence derived from the torture of others. Torture is endemic in Jordan. Um, his positions and politics and views of the world are deeply unattractive. But, as my mother used to say, why can't you get some nice clients? Well, I'm afraid you don't go looking for uh, good clients when it comes to human rights cases. Sometimes um, you have to take what you get. Before 9-11, his position was that he was here, he was given a, a leave of stay, um, and it was being argued that he couldn't be returned to Jordan because of its uh, history of torture. Then after 9-11, he was taken into custody and was one of the Belmarsh detainees, and he has spent nearly now nearly 10 years in prison until he was granted a period of uh, bail. Um, you know what the issue is, that um, uh, the 
he appealed and it went through our courts and eventually um, uh, an agreement was uh, made with Georgian that they wouldn't, they wouldn't torture him. It's called diplomatic assurances. These are cases that I still am in court doing. Cases where an agreement is made with a country that you won't torture this particular person. Um, I happen to uh, take the same view as Johann Steen, the great judge who recently retired from our Supreme Court. I think there's something rather re repellent about the idea is, we, we, you know, don't, don't torture this man because it would be very inconvenient for us and places us in a difficult position and we'd like to get rid of him. But what you do to other people, we're not so concerned about. There's a, there's a, there's a rather unattractive, as far as I'm concerned, um, baseline in the whole business of diplomatic assurances. Um, but uh, diplomatic assurances were obtained with Jordan about Abu Qatada, and, uh, and, but he appealed to the uh, European Court on the basis that such diplomatic assurances couldn't be uh, uh, relied upon given the, the history of, of abuse in Jordan. Well, the European Court, although you wouldn't think it from the press coverage, found in the favour of the British government and said diplomatic assurances are perfectly fine. They're a perfectly legal thing for you to do, and they upheld uh, the Supreme Court's decision that he could be sent back um, with diplomatic assurances. What they were not happy about was then the second argument, which was made that, in fact, the case he, was, he would be tried upon uh, on return um, was based on evidence which had been produced from the torturing of others. That they were, they were uh, understandably concerned about, and, uh, and so that's the state of play at the moment can uh, Jordan uh, give confident assurance that the evidence they've got um, on which they would put him on trial um, is not based on torture. Well, um, that might prove difficult, difficulty, uh, a difficulty for the government. But, of course, what, what the situation now is is that the conservative right want him put on the next plane to Jordan. And I suspect that large tracts of the, the Labour Party also would like to have him put on the next plane to Jordan. And they believe that Britain should ignore the court in the belief that the British national security should trump any, trump any concerns about whether people in Jordan are tortured. So you have to then ask the question, is whether we think it does matter that Britain takes a stand in the world against torture, even in the face of concerns about the risk associated by the, with this one man. Now, I believe we should take a stand. I think that uh, this man, Abu Qatada, is probably uh, a, a seriously unpleasant, nasty piece of work. But do I want the United Kingdom to lose its moral authority and the stance that we've taken on torture, even if we have fallen from grace in relation to rendition? And the evidence points in that direction. But are we really uh, going to, in some way, condone torture taking place in Jordan rather than... Uh, being able to shift Jordan away from that kind of conduct. I don't accept that Abu Qatada poses such a threat that our international commitment to the anti-torture convention, the absolute right not to be torture, tortured, I don't believe that that commitment should be diminished. But there are other lawyers who take different views, and they take the view that it's not our responsibility to teach the world lessons on human rights that those struggles belong to other people and that we should look after number one. And I'm afraid looking after number one is probably one of the, the uh, 
um, urges that has got us into uh, perhaps the less satisfactory place that we're currently in. But hostility to the European court decisions has initiated calls for the creation of a democratic override. What could that possibly mean? Some want our parliament to have the power to vote after there's a, a judgment from the European Court of Human Rights, they should have the power to vote to say whether they like it or not. Just think about the implications of that. Just think about the joy and celebration there will be in, uh, in Russia, in Moldova, in whole tracts of, uh, of Turkey, if that uh, is a possibility that can then um, find favour there. There are now 47 countries in, who are all signed up to the Council of Europe. Um, and, of course, many of them have come in since the uh, end of the Cold War, encouraged to do so because Bill Clinton uh, was very enthusiastic that that was one of the ways in which uh, um, Russia should be brought into the fold. Um, but, of course, they are often uh, um, committing terrible uh, human rights abuses there's a backlog of 150,000 cases currently at the European Court of Human Rights, and the vast majority of them come from six countries, and Russia's up there at the top, and Moldova, and Turkey, and so on. And, uh, and part of the problems are the conditions of people in prison, the imprisonment of people in mental asylums, the uh, locking up of, uh, of uh, political opponents, the locking up of journalists, um, the list goes on. But in whole tracts of the former um, uh, of that part of the world, of Eastern Europe, the, um, many of the concerns are about the treatment of the Roma. You can well imagine uh, the, the risks there are um, of democratic overrides if they were to be given to the parliaments in those nations. Some of us, um, some of the, the, uh, our critics of, of the human rights uh, uh, regime um, want uh, argue that, um, in fact, well, if, they can't, if our parliament can't have that override, um, then at least um, there should be an override at the Council of Europe level, um, though I can't imagine for a minute that um, being uh, agreed upon. But the democratic override argument is one that is also sought in relation to our own Supreme Court, that our judges too, it is argued, are overreaching, becoming too activist, and that somehow legislation has to be passed to pull them into line. What happened to that great tradition of judicial discretion? And so we have a real backlash uh, against human rights. And um, it is right that the ideology of human rights does mean recognizing that certain moral and social values are above state sovereignty. I mean, we can't get away from the fact that a court like the, the European court does involve loss of sovereignty. Some Western countries still have trouble accepting this, not least the United States of America, which refused to sign up to the International Criminal Court because it would not expose American citizens to its jurisdiction. Most of the West held strongly to the concept of national sovereignty until the Second World War. And the reason I think that we're seeing this resurgence here and in other parts of Europe is a response to globalization, a retreat into nationhood where at least we can have some sway in the face of the buffeting of global, global forces.
By and large, after World War II, most Western democracies accepted that it was no longer tolerable to insist on absolute sovereignty over the way that states dealt with their own populations, given the development of an interdependent global community. However, the immigration issue particularly has inflamed hostility to human rights and to the European Court, and increasingly the argument that the UK's sovereignty is being undermined is the argument gaining ground. Sections of the British press and of the Conservative Party are demanding that either the scope of human rights law be limited or that the UK leave the European Court altogether. And the tabloid media is, is absolutely uh, uh, virulent about human rights, and I'm afraid it has fed into um, public perceptions. When you talk about human rights, you always have to ask, as your starting point, the question, what does it mean to be human? And we know that in some dark parts of some people's hearts, the other, the migrant, the foreigner, the prisoner, the homosexual, is still deemed sufficiently different to justify lesser protections. And, of course, in other parts of the world, and many of them, um, women too are not given their full humanity. So any legal system, I think, that contends that somehow there are some people who are of lesser value um, is running in the face of human rights. And we see that with Sharia law's approach to women um, as, as, uh, as testifiers, as witnesses, that it, you know, the value of a woman's uh, testimony um, is half that of a man. And it can't be acceptable. But it's vital to remember that the West did much the same until comparatively recently. And we have to keep in this discussion remembering and saying we weren't so great ourselves not very long ago where we, there was a requirement for corroboration of women's testimony in rape cases right up until 1991. And by that time, I was a QC. Women were not as credible. Any legal system which considers the physical disciplining of women by their male family members or which sees rape as an offence against property rights of men or which fail to invest women with their full uh, humanity have to, be, have to be called into question. Now, I'm regularly confronted by members of the public who feel that prisoners or terrorists or paedophiles should forego their human rights. And they're often not persuaded or persuadable when I explain to them that to be human does not mean to be good. Our humanity is imperfect. We can be intolerant at times. We can be dishonest. We can do cruel things. And sometimes we can be criminal. And when we're criminal and commit offences, we can be punished. But it doesn't mean that because you commit a crime that you should be denied your humanity. I also have to insist that human rights are not contractual and contingent on good behavior, because that's what people tend to say to you. Why should that guy who's uh, busy preaching bad things, um, why should he uh, have his human rights looked after? What about you know, everybody else's, and uh, why should he? He's forfeited them. He shouldn't be entitled to human rights. Frequently, politicians reach for the mantra that there should be rights and responsibilities, as though that's a deal. I'm all for shared responsibility. In fact, I would like the bankers to be taking some responsibility. But it's an obfuscation and a denial of human rights principles to appease public opinion by pretending that rights should only be available to those who behave themselves. And that was the whole point of the Universal Declaration, to acknowledge that a rationale will always be found for denying rights to the unpopular and the despised. 
And it, may, it may well be that the time is right for a discourse on social obligation, but it shouldn't suck the air out of a discourse on human rights. And I say this particularly because if you do this, if we do this here, you can be sure, and I mentioned the, the, the issue of the Roma people. Roma people across Eastern Europe are loathed. If you speak to um, a, a human rights activists there, they say that they're fearful of the kind of backlash, and backlash against uh, 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 the use of human rights there, a fear um, of, uh, of scapegoating. And political parties stand on platforms in parts of Eastern Europe wanting to deny uh, the Roma their rights. Um, and so we should have it very clearly in our minds of the knock-on effects of any retrenchment by us. So what am I saying? What does it mean? And what I'm saying to you is that basically um, we really do have to think seriously about the direction of the current debate. It'll come as no surprise to you that I'm firmly of the belief that human rights provide us with a sort of global glue. Certainly, as I said, a template against which our national laws can be measured. But more than that, a mechanism for maintaining a discourse about how we can live our lives together in peace and in justice. It's how we can, bit by bit, struggle by struggle, build a better future. And if we've learned anything from the global economic crisis, it is that there have to be accepted norms regulating our interconnected world, calling to account abusers, whether they're corporate, financial, or government, or individuals, because that's what justice is all about. Law has to cross borders if we have globalization. We have to find new models for doing, for doing that, and it's going to be challenging, but it has to be possible. And law has to be grounded in principle, and that's where human rights come in. Isaiah Berlin was one of the great scholars and creative thinkers of the 20th century. And I know he played a crucial role in the founding of this college, and you're right to feel very proud of the association. He's one of my heroes um, because of his commitment to civil liberties. Um, but also because of his curiosity, his interest, his passion for ideas, and, of course, um, his essay on the two concepts of liberty, uh, distinguishing freedom from the English tradition, that permissive uh, uh, tradition, from freedom to the sort of the Russo um, Enlightenment tradition. I think if he were alive today, he would be at the center of these debates about human rights, because human rights is one of the big ideas, and it was big ideas that interested him. That big ideas require balancing acts and an understanding of language, and the language's capacity to conflate and obscure difference. I think that I always argue that democracy was the big idea of the 20th century. Not that it was invented then, of course it had its roots way back, but the last century was the one where it developed and grew until it became the aspiration of many nations and universal suffrage became the norm. Similarly, human rights rooted in history will be the big idea of this century, I have no doubt. And it will be fought over exactly as democracy has been fought over and struggled for and has be became the rallying cry for people. And it will be at the heart of debates all over the world as we search for a new way of having economic justice. Um, human rights are going to be necessary to ameliorate the excesses of markets, for calling dictators to account, for infusing our relationships, even in our own locale, infusing our relationships with mutual respect. And that's why 
when we talk about globalization and we talk about law, we have to always make sure that human rights are part of that conversation. Thank you.